Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today it is my great joy and pleasure to welcome Paul Kudanek, who is an amazing writer and he's known as Winter Oak. You probably know him as Winter Oak. And he writes really, really wonderful things, uh, especially on the topic of the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and Prince Charles. By the way, your recent uh, big article about Prince Charles and uh, his relationship with the Great Reset and the financial reset, it was actually really, really in-depth and wonderful. I highly recommend it to everybody. And recently, you wrote a book, and it's about uh, the rebranding of fascism. So, yeah. Uh, but first, do you want to say a few things about yourself? Um, yeah, well, I'm, um, I'm a journalist by profession. So um, I decided to become a writer about um, 10 years ago rather than a journalist. So I left my, uh, my uh, day job to de devote myself to writing on more, uh, uh, more uh, abstract matters, really. I wanted to write about philosophy and um, mm. metaphysics and all sorts of ideas. But I've just become dragged back into, into the real world over the last few years, especially with the, uh, the whole COVID great reset thing. So, um, yeah, so, so um, what else could I say? I mean, I was, uh, I was active as an anarchist um, in, in the UK for many years. Now I'm living in France. And uh, there's been a strange split between me and other people who, uh, who I thought were on the same side as me, who uh, suddenly uh, regard me as... Uh, not part of their side at all because I'm a conspiracy theorist and, uh, and, a, uh, and the rest of it. So it's, a, yeah, it's been a very, very strange, but very interesting and uh, stimulating few years. That's interesting. So do you want to jump into that? I was actually going to ask you about anarchism and your relationship with it, because I think this is one thing where uh, my feeling of detesting isms goes farther than yours because to me anarchism is a part of isms and you have a fondness but we can get into that now or later whatever you prefer if you want to talk about your book first we can do that uh well it's all the same, sub well, it's all the same subject really i mean the um, the book in question fascism rebranded is in fact a, a collection of essays that i started that, that i was writing uh, it starts from 2018 uh -huh. And uh, it runs through to the to 2021, and it's, uh, I did put it online on um, on my on the Winter Oak site uh, last year, but now it's been taken up whereby Nevermore Media, who are based, most of them are more based on your side of the Atlantic, and they've translated. They've had it translated into Spanish and French, in fact, and uh, so it's sort of been relaunched. Uh, Oh, it's still very relevant. It's not got out of date. That's for sure. In the last uh, in the last few months, so um, but it's it, it very part of the book talks about my reaction to what happened uh, during COVID uh, with regard to the anarchist uh, movement as a whole. So it's it's not it's not a different subject. It's all the same subject. So we can start with that if you want. <laughs> oh, cool. So this is so. First, let me ask you the basic question well basic as it gets it's obviously not a really basic question but what is your relationship with anarchism like what what it means to you what does the word mean to you and how did you arrive at that and what, what was your involvement so how did it all develop uh, well um i've been an anarchist since i was about 30 well it's about you know which is was in the mid 90s I finally realized I was an anarchist, but I think I was an anarchist deep down before then, but I just hadn't worked out. I didn't know what anarchism was, but I came to it via, um, via the, the written word rather than through, the, uh, through, through any through personal contact. In fact, I was, I was looking, for, uh, looking for ideas that, that reflected what I felt. And I was looking for ideas around uh, self-determination principally. And a self-determination, an idea of self-determination that goes beyond just national self-determination that percolates down through the whole of society. So the, uh, on every level, actually going back down to the individuals, that there's individual self-determination. And I thought I'd invented something, actually, when I was, I was, I was in my 20s. And I thought, wow, yeah, I've discovered something really fantastic here. This is uh, this is going to shake the world, you know. And then somebody lent me a book about anarchism. And I was like, oh, <laughs> somebody <laughs> already invented this several hundred years ago. <laughs> so so I, then I, uh, so I started 
studying anarchism in a way, well, studying is a big word, reading books about anarchism. And, um, and uh, humbly starting to, uh, I mean, I was, I, bet, I suppose that must have been about the time I started going to anarchist, the anarchist book fair. It was a big annual event in London. And I started going to that, you know, in order to pick up literature about anarchism and listen to other people because, I, you know, I had a whole learning process to go through. And then gradually I became involved. I set up with some other people, anarchists. We didn't call ourselves. Initially, we didn't call ourselves anarchists, but it was an anarchist group in the place I lived. And I carried, we carried on doing that. I was doing that for years. We had um, 15 years, I think, of, uh, of monthly meetings. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, similar number of years of monthly stalls in the, in the town centre, handing out anarchist literature. And we did leaflets, newsletters. And so I was heavily involved in it, but on a very local level, because I thought that that was part of my idea was, was local. Localism, I, I thought I called it at one point, a local anarchism. So it wasn't, it wasn't sort of like joining up to some agenda being dictated from the, uh, from the, from the National Anarchist Federation or something. You know, <laughs> it was a uh, grassroots, you know, do-it-yourself anarchism. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that is that that is so interesting because my own perception to me the symbol of anarchism is actually almost the opposite because i grew up there was a street named after kropotkin there was a monument so it was delivered to me as a part of the same package as revolutionaries trying to liberate people which by the time i was thinking about it in a like in a teen mind i knew was bullshit so mm -hmm. like i never like to me anarchism is something that a part of the package of isms. So, and it's probably a matter of like semantics and we all essentially make our own definitions for words and this is how all human beings are. But it is yeah. so interesting. I would want to spend a lot of time just as human, human to human, just discussing that because it is so fascinating to me. Because I see you tweet a lot about anarchists and, and you clearly admire them and I am like we agree on pretty much everything and I have completely different idea about this this is so fascinating so well, yeah uh, yeah I mean uh, yeah go on go on no, no, no. and then I am thinking in the light of COVID and you're saying that your regular anarchist circles reacted to that directed to COVID and they decided that you're a conspiracy theorist which was very similar to my experience with my musician activists people who, I mean, like, I still love them dearly as human beings, but they're on the completely opposite side of this thing. So, mm -hmm. so what was the story? So COVID happened and your anarchist friend did what? Well, I mean, it goes back before then, actually. To the, to, to the whole story goes back then before then. I mean, I'd noticed for... Having discovered this this anarchism, which was classical anarchism, what I discovered when the book of that the first book that I read about anarchism was written by George Woodcock, and he oh. wrote it in, in the in the early part of the 1960s. So it was completely talking about what 19th and 20th, early mid up to the mid 20th century type of anarchism, oh. and um, that to me is very coherent. Uh, but I noticed that in the in the actual anarchist media, some of the people I was mixing with didn't have that same understanding. Uh, but there were lots of different varieties, actually. It's very mixed. And gradually, I saw that they didn't, to me, they didn't grasp the, the most essential part of it, which, um, which to me was, in fact, um, well, Kropotkin. Is, I really like Kropotkin's work. Uh, you know, I agree with him on everything he ever said. But the, the, his major insight for me was that um, the cooperation is... is uh, is natural to humanity. He was, he was actually he was countering the, uh, the Darwinist, the, the, um, the right-wing version of Darwinism, not really Darwin himself, but the, the right-wing who took up Darwin's theories in order to justify uh, competition, a society based on dog-eat-dog uh, -dog competition, you know, the, the fittest, the survival of the fittest. That's what life is like. It's uh, everyone competes against each other and the strongest, the most ruthless, you know, that's a sort of proto-fascism really. To say that it's it's natural that the strongest and most violent and uh, dominating individuals and uh, peoples will survive, and he went against that and said, no, in fact, 
the whole secret of, of evolution is that people have to cooperate and it's true of animals as well yeah and it's um it's both uh, an ethics and uh, an unnecessary uh, evolutionary principle, mutual aid. And it doesn't mean that everything is always harmonious, that people are always nice to each other or, or animals don't kill each other and uh, the rest of it. But that is the, the, that is the overall view of, um, of, of animal and human society is of a united organism that has to cooperate and work as a whole in order to function. And, uh, and that's because of an innate, something innate inside of us. But the trouble is that for, for, the, for many current many of the current generation of anarchism, there is no such thing as innate. That is essentialism. Everything, you know, there isn't, we're not, we're born as, as, as blank, uh, blank slates, just as uh, we have no, we, you know, for that, that I've discovered, that I didn't realize that people felt this, but I discovered but for a lot of anarchists, it's, it's, it's tantamount to uh, some sort of racism to say that we're born with innate characteristics because we can self-define, that's whatever we want, or we are educated to become whatever the, the system wants. But there isn't actually something solid inside us that determines or that provides uh, the capacity for what we're to become. So to me, there was a sort of failure then in order to understand why it is that anarchists think that we don't need the state. Anarchists think that we don't need the state, in fact that the state is counterproductive, because we naturally, we would live with each other. We know how to organise amongst ourselves. We don't need the government to come and tell us how to do this and this and that, because we, we have to be able to work with each other and cooperate in order to survive. And that was that was the basic insight of, um, of anarchism for me, classical anarchism, which has been forgotten because... They've abandoned half of the half of the half of the original philosophy, in my mind. So um, I don't know. Am I making myself clear? Uh, no, I think you are. I, I'm just completely fascinated with how the differences in upbringing, in your case and in my case, shaped completely different associations with anarchism. Because mm -hmm. it, it makes sense the cooperation part in an innate way, and I think that competition and cooperation they're both existent sentiments in nature and in human society mm. so like the the, the the trick is the balance because competition yeah. can be interesting and it's like a game and even i think in the olden days people fought wars in a way that was more i mean the war is a war but the the mentality of war was very different from today i think but uh at the same time, to me, anarchist is a person who is like a terrorist trying to rebel against the state by actually doing violence. So, yeah, like, I mean, the, the, the violent, I mean, they're happy. Obviously, that is also part of the anarchist tradition is to, is to, is, is been to rise up and resist uh, against unfair or, uh, you know, very unfair. In fact, at a stage when they were rising up and assassinating people, you know, the working people in many countries were being totally crushed. It was a desperation that led to uh, led to people to want to take up arms and assassinate heads of state. And what to what extent that was a good tactic or not, I don't know. But you can understand the desperation that led them to do it. But it's, it's only anarchism is only uh, has this uh, destructive side in order in order to destroy the repression that is preventing us from living harmoniously. The end goal. Of, of, of anarchism is uh, is order. In fact, it's a natural order rather than uh, the dis the end goal isn't the destruction of the old order. It's the uh, it's the removal of all the concrete and steel and the, and the machinery which is stopping the uh, which is stopping genuine organic life from springing up. Well, that's my interpretation anyway. Like I I I've, I've actually for many many months I was I had a secret on the back of my head like a secret desire to actually understand your thinking on the topic because you, you post about anarchism a lot. And I was like, I agree with so many things. This I don't get and I want to understand it. So... Yeah. Yes, um, the word can be a barrier, can't they? They're, they're, they're totally a barrier between communicating. You could get, it's a means of communication and also a barrier yeah. to communication because we've got our own understanding of certain terms. And, yeah. but, but, so... Uh, uh, do you mind if I ask you what you think about this? Uh, and it's an example that is not related to anarchism, but I'm going, to, it's just a picturesque metaphor. So for example, 
for a number of years, I was so, I was, I was so indignant about the fact that there's cruelty in the world and that there is like violence and all those things. And it just generally just by nature, fairly peaceful that that's my thing. Like harmony is my thing. So, and I'm not referring to anarchist violence in this case, like in general, like wars, violence. And mm -hmm. I was thinking, so for example, if you take a serial killer who is the epitome of completely awful cruelty, like sadistic, cold-minded cruelty, and if you if you subject a serial killer to the kind of pain that he subjects his victims to, would he realize, would he learn the lesson? Would he essentially realize that what he was doing was wrong would it fix things and i presented that concept not that i had a practical plan to to do that but i was i was so indignant i was like i was i was really so indignant so i i i talked about it to a very wise person and he told me well if you did that you would be just like him and it took me many years so it, it kind of makes sense but 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 I was like, but, 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 but he started first, but, 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 you know, like all those things, like theoretical arguments. So it's like, it's to fix things. He was doing it for that, for bad things. And that is to fix things. And then it took me many years. And I realized that this is, I mean, this is where I'm at anyway. So uh, that this is how life works, how things that start, if you don't watch for your own, what I call like inner transhumanist, inner control freak, inner person who wants to just, tell other people what to do. If you don't watch out for that inside, then even the best intention, the best protective plan, the best ideal thing turns out to be dark and abusive and as abusive as this thing that they were trying to fight. And that seems mm -hmm. to be playing in history again and again and again, like in the history of my own country where, well, the Bolsheviks, in my opinion, as the, as the organizers were scum, that is my personal opinion. But then they recruited people with genuine pain and played on the worst instincts, but there was genuine pain too. But out of there came nothing but abuse, even though the ideals could have sounded wonderful because they were trying to whatever, like help the workers and whatnot. But so, so many times in history, there's an abused group and then they rise. And then if their leaders are even slightly dishonest or inclined to self-elevation, then it becomes even worse abuse, or at least not better. And it plays again and again and again. So using, and there's a genre of honest war, and I guess it's more of a male thing that I, I mean, like I will never understand it from the inside because I just don't, I mean, I can theoretically understand, but I, I work differently. So, but bringing i'm trying to bring it back to anarchist violence so do you think that i i completely understand the sentiment if somebody's going at you with a knife then you do whatever it takes no question right but uh thinking that being even slightly unfair in your uprising like it usually happens in history that it can bring anything good to me, it's a delusion, and I want to get your thoughts on that. What well, resistance is a delusion, or not resistance? I mean resistance, but I guess the point that I have on the inside, and I'm not sure if I'm explaining it clearly. Well, explaining is not the right word. If I'm conveying it clearly, is that the most important thing we can do as human beings, whether we resist, whether we write, whether we make art, whatever, is keeping that spiritual balance. That has nothing to do with any isms. And we really have to watch out for our own ego or tendency to even anger. Like anger has a purpose in nature as a release, as a whatever. But we have to be like super extra careful to make sure that it doesn't go one inch further than it is for healing. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. There's, we've all got a lot of work to do. It should be something, that's something that I've, yeah, so I mean, I think we all have to do that in parallel with any, with any political, any political activity. We have to uh, look inside ourselves and uh, cross cross examine ourselves as to uh, our way of functioning and so on. And uh, but and I think that should be the um, for me uh, a real progress in society 
would, would revolve around that. It would be about looking at the way we the way we all behave and the way we think about addressing our uh, egotistical tendencies, about addressing the shadow side and how we how we keep that in its place. And I think we'll always have that. We'll always have it. We will, ne we will never be sort of angels. We're human beings with all the with all the flaws and baggage that there comes with it. But a real a pro real progress in society would be to work towards that. And uh, but unfortunately, what the direction our civilization has gone in is, is the opposite direction, isn't it? I mean, we, what is valued in our society by the society as a whole is, is being ruthless and succeeding and uh, you know having more than other people, being able to raise yourself up above other people. <laughs> so then, the, any any notion of progress is just sort of equated with um, inventing new gadgets to kill people or to uh, make more money and to, to achieve the same end. So, yeah, I mean, I would much rather, um, well, I'm really, I've been quite inspired by Indian, Indian thought, Indian philosophy, which is very much to do with um, addressing the inside or, uh, of ourselves through which we find, through, through looking at the inside, we also find the outside. So, uh, the spiritual, the spiritual element is very much um, is very much part of my my kind of anarchism, which is another thing which doesn't always go down very well with with the, the so-called official anarchist movement, which is which has uses the uh, which uses the slogan uh, "No gods, no masters," and it is you know a lot of people a lot of people in that movement are very vehemently opposed to any talk of spirit. Because it's it, you know there is that, that element in official anarchism which is inherited the sort of nineteenth century rationalism of uh, the early socialist movement. And, uh, so I said that's another that's another divergence from my version of uh, well, not just mine but you know other people who other anarchists who think like me and uh, who find themselves on the fringes of um, of what you might call the uh, the mainstream movement. Although I think that mainstream Anarchism is sort of crumbling, uh, crumbling away at the moment under the sheer weight of its uh, inherent contradictions. This is interesting. And you're saying that anarchists in your circles, well, when COVID happened, did they embrace the new normal, to put it bluntly? No, there was. A, I mean, I, I think this goes beyond the ideology. There, there were, they were, they were saying, "Oh yeah, we've got to, you know, it's it's an it's an emergency. We've got to, we've got to do what the government says," you know. But I don't think these are real anarchists. You know, to me, if you can, you can't go that far and still call yourself an anarchist. I, but the logic is so the government usually is lying assholes. But right now, because there's now it's different. Now it's different. Now the, uh, the you know the personal freedom, personal freedom. The idea of individual freedom became overnight uh, something that was equated with uh, the right. You know, I was I was told that I was I, it was like I was like being a Trump supporter because I was talking about individual freedom. Of course, in the and a real anarchist, apparently, but not interested. Individual freedom, only collective freedom, and collective freedom in the case of COVID means you know protecting the community and uh, obeying the obeying the uh, obeying the laws. Well, not even laws, were they? The regulations that have been set out to 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 protect the vulnerable and uh, you know there was, but. Um, Okay, well, there are times when you do want to when you do want to accept a collective responsibility. But what I argued, and actually that's in the that's in the in the fascism, fascism rebranded book, is that in, in this context, collective responsibility to me was to um, see through the lies that were being peddled under the under the COVID banner. And the collective responsibility for me was to stand up, stand up there and say, no, hang on, you know, we're being we're being conned here. There's a different agenda at, at stake. So I wasn't at all uh, neglecting the, the idea of taking a collective responsibility. It's just that my interpretation of it was based on a different, a different interpret, a different interpretation of what was actually happening. But the, but there's um, this pro-COVID, the um, pro-Pfizer left, as uh, somebody called it, attitude was just a sort <laughs> of, such uh, a good term. <laughs> yeah. Pro-Pfizer left. Just to swallow the whole thing, <laughs> not question it, and, and to base all everything subsequently on the fact that. You know that that is undeniable truth, and if you question that truth, you're you're a conspiracy theorist, and therefore a bad person. That's just a, a route you can't go down to actually propose that they suggest that there is something uh, dubious and spurious going on. But, this is fascinating. 
It's very, it's very strange and unnerving. <laughs> Yeah, and so strange. your book, uh, a large part of it is about that, about the transformation of the anarchist <laughs> circle, your own, yeah. your own reaction to COVID. Yeah, part of it is. I mean, it sort of follows that through. I mean, it's a sort of series of blog posts that I wrote. So it started, it started off with, with, with my thoughts about the way that the left was going. This was before COVID, that it was becoming, and about, about fascism. I'd been doing a lot of reading about fascism, uh, just, um, just coincidentally, well, not really coincidentally. It was just before COVID happened, I'd been reading about fascism, and looking at the links between fascism and liberalism. In fact, uh, fascism, liberalism likes to say that fascism is something completely different from it. You know, that when I say liberalism, I mean, you know, the society. The society we live in, the so-called Western democracy. Oh, fascism is something other. You know, it's nothing to do with us. Oh, it's all those. Um, you know, it's the um, it's the populists, or it's the uh, you know, it's the it's, it's you know, it's the under it's the underclass, or it's the uh, you know, it's the. Well, I, I won't go into it all now, but there was this 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 whole this, this whole narrative about what fascism is and isn't, and it's supposed to be nothing to do with liberalism. But when you look at when you look at it historically, and I quite a few books have looked at this. In fact, liberalism and fascism is quite similar. I mean, uh, Mussolini embraced liberalism overtly because um, there's a, not the uh, not the political liberalism wanting to uh, wanting to give free freedom of speech and expression to everybody, but, but the economic liberalism. He was um, he was in favour of uh, well, which which is capitalism or neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism. He was a precursor of that. And um, up to the point of also uh, uh, openly acclaiming it. Um, where was I going with this? So um, yeah, so I was noticing that convergence. Yeah, because to me, fascism, and to me, and not just to me, other people have said this. People would see that in the book that um, that liberalism only pretends. To be uh, to be uh, democratic, really truly democratic. It's just a it's a convenient it's a convenient way of remaining in power. Just to say, oh no, we're the nice ones. You know, you wouldn't want to live in any of these other these other societies. You know, liberalism, democracy. That's that's you've got all your rights. You've got everything you need. This is the way the world should be. But the moment that there's some threat to that to that to their order, they reserve the right to um, to drop the pretense and switch to another mode and an emergency mode of governance. Uh, which is something that um, Frank Zappa famously warned about. I haven't got the exact quote to, to hand, but it was something like one day, you know, the, the, all the all the in the theater, this theater, this spectacle of, uh, of democracy, all the scenery will be removed and all the props and the rest of it, and you'll just see the brick wall at the back of the theater, and that is the reality. It's the system, and the system doesn't care whether it's uh, whether it's democratic or not. It's happy to go along with pretending. To be. But when it needs to, it'll adopt some other guys. And I think that was what happened in, uh, Soviet, in Soviet communism, the Bolsheviks. I mean, they crushed the real revolution. I've just been reading Volin's, uh, do you know Volin, a Russian anarchist? Probably not, because you're not, you're not being particularly interested I, in anarchism. I've, I've heard the name, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know his work. No, well, it's worth reading if you ever have a, have a, a week or two to read. It's quite a big <laughs> but, uh uh, it's called the. Uh, I've been reading it in French. But I think it's the Unknown Revolution in, in English. It's called. Anyway, he talks about all the way that there was a there was a popular revolution, but it was but it was in fact crushed by the Bolsheviks. For him, the, the Bolsheviks were counter revolution. In fact, it's the system taking on a different form. And I think there's the same thing happened in uh, in uh, in uh, fascist Italy and in Nazi Germany. It was just another emergency form taken on by the system. And then, of course, I've been already writing this, and then um, some of it, and then COVID comes along, and uh, ah, interesting. They're declaring a state of emergency. Oh, all the usual. We're not going back to the old normal. All, all of that was just a luxury. All your rights and things. Now, now, you know, in face in the face of what's happening, you've all got to knuckle under and adapt yourself to the new normality, which is exactly what Mussolini said to the Italians. We're going to have a new Italian who's, you know, fits in with the modern world, and it's this new reality. They want the um, they announced that the year, or even the naming of the years, was to start again under. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't think he pulled it off, but that was the idea that you know they wouldn't talk about 1931; they'd talk about uh, year whatever it was, year eight of the uh, the new the new fascist era. And they said very much the same language as the new normal, and uh, we're never going back to the old normal. And, uh, 
all that clash with the great reset rhetoric all that rhetoric is the same uh which is why which is why my i've been saying that um the great reset is a great fascist reset mm -hmm. other people have said oh no it's the great communist reset because to them it reminds them more of communism soviet style communism but really it doesn't really matter what word you use it's the same it's the same device of a of a system ditching its previously democratic guise and, and adopting this 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 um, totalitarian mode in, in order to impose what it what it wants on the population so that's the general i'd say that's the general the general theme of the book anyway i can't wait to read it and I also want to take this part of the conversation and really dig dig deeper because that's uh, that's my favorite that's my favorite animal. So the isms uh, and the vanity of isms in the context of what the Great Reset it, it is, whether it's communist, fascist, because people clash on that so much, and to me it's such a trap. And I think well, one of my favorite uh philosophers on the topic of language is Stephen Newcomb and his system of domination and I think it describes it goes to the root of it so the entire thing no matter what isn't you attached to that that's the machine that's the spirit of domination that's something that tells you that there's a system and in order to be human or civil you have to essentially give up your freedom your fundamental freedom and then go for the program and so all isms kind of function with it the same under the same umbrella and so for example i don't know how it is where you are but uh here in the states there's a like there's a very specific like people who really don't like the great reset based on the American Constitution. And you know what? I appreciate the American Constitution very much right now because it is definitely it is something that could be very helpful and it is not being respected. But then if you dig deeper, then it also, it took a genocide to establish this country. So oh, there's no real contradiction between capitalism and, so, and communism, for example. Communism to me is a mo the most monopolistic version of capitalism. And ownership is framed as management or yeah. like really ownership i mean like they're called like they don't technically own it but they use it anyway as if they owned it and mm. they can transfer it. Capitalism. Yes. so it's like it's the same thing kind of i mean it's a very different distribution and say communism was more brutal on the people than say capitalism in the developed countries after world war ii between world war ii and 9 11 like no doubt like yeah, in, in the developed countries. Right. Yeah. It was far more pleasant to be in a capitalist country in that time period than it was to be in the communist country. No doubt. However, fundamentally, as you see, as, as you're saying right now, the theater decorations are off. Then the true nature is coming out. And it has always been, it was just more hidden. So when people argue about it, so my practical thinking comes in because what matters? What matters more? Being right? or actually resisting the great reset in earnest victoriously. Well, the practical results seem far more important than who is right and what we call it. So, yeah. and the people who want the great reset to succeed, they would love for us to continue arguing and splitting as much as possible on every ideological point. And then I'm thinking, so what drives the splits? That is our love of symbols, because we as human beings, especially with our culture being abusive in everywhere, really. Like our culture is abusive to us, even if it gives us chocolates and gadgets and houses and whatnot, it does not respect our spirit. So we all earn for it. Like we, we long for spirit. We don't know how to go about it. So we go into all sorts of funny ways sometimes, but distorted, but really we want respect. We want to be with the spirit, right? And so we use symbols because we're afraid to deal directly with the mystery. It is so scary because the mystery is so overwhelming. We get no training on how to deal with it. People find their own relationships, even through institutional religions. And I think that we bring whatever we have inside, we bring to the system we are given. But as such, man-made systems make it a little difficult. So we don't know how to deal with the mystery. 
We, we try to sense it out and it's very scary. And because of that, people go after symbols. They attach to symbols and it can be any ism, any like ideology, whatever comes at us, whatever finds the most appealing, we attach to that. And then we get overly attached to that because symbols are very limiting and our longing for the spirit is infinite. So we attach the infinite to the finite and it messes everything up. We become dogmatic. So like that is my theory about how it all works psychologically. Mm-hmm. And to me, in order to break through this horrible, ugly challenge of the great reset, like the entire, what has to be reset really is our way we interact with the mystery. And that's, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I agree. I know I, I agree actually. I mean, uh, yeah, you're putting it in a slightly different way, but I, I think I agree. Uh, it's um, and I think things, everything flows down from that. Once when I, I, I think it's, it's this holistic overview that we need to get back, which transcends all these symbols really to have an understanding that transcends the divisions. You're right about this thing that. that the, 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 these labels divide, but they're constantly trying to do that. Is, is to create these these binary divisions between us and on in every subject. And I and I do think the words. I'd like to be able to go. I think the words are a problem as well, as you say. And um, we can get beyond them. But how do we really? How do we communicate? If we haven't got the words to communicate. That's the trouble. Because I mean, this the, the mystery. You mean the oneness of the universe, but the mystery, the oneness of um, yeah, whatever yeah. calls it. Yeah. Yeah, whichever. I mean, everybody's got different words for it. Even that is a problem. Because they have, some people call it God, Allah, or, um, you know, the, the great spirit, or, you know, or the universe. And uh, But if we, how can we, it's, it's difficult to know how we can even talk about it if we've got different words for it. But, um, and then, um, but I suppose if we can at least come to the understanding that we're talking about the same thing. I mean, I've been interested in over, over the years in the perennialist tradition, which is, um, which is, which is the idea that behind all of the uh, all of the world's religions, there is the, the same fundamental metaphysical idea of belonging to a, to a unit, a, universe, a universal unity of the oneness, and that um, but that, that has been lost behind all the all the structures and the detail of all the different religions. So, and that's something I've um, I've been um, exploring for for a while now. I'm trying to trying to what I'm trying to do is is, is incorporate that within a into a more uh, a philosophy which is also political so i, I talked at one, I, I wrote one stage about uh, anarcho anarcho perennialism which is um which is you know part of that process i haven't used that for a few years now but um, that was part of that process of trying to bring the two together so it's not just as again that's another reason i've invented another reason and in in your terms that's uh, that's not helpful but I don't know how I don't know how we can talk about things without giving them some sort of provisional labels. But at the same time, we shouldn't become too attached to them and uh, and think that the label uh, is more important than the reality. We shouldn't, uh, you know, that thing about the um, when 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 you point when you put a finger points at the moon, the fool looks at the finger rather than the moon, and uh, the, the 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 finger is the. Uh, is the, is the ism perhaps the symbol that well is this is meant that's the metaphor supposed to talk about the symbol being taken as being the reality rather than the the, the greater reality which is supposed to be indicating so perhaps it's a part is to do with finding a way of thinking which understands that a way of thinking which doesn't become stuck at that level which is always which is always trying to uh, remain fluid and go beyond the obvious go beyond the surface and uh, and go that step beyond, which I, yeah, I think that's I think that's what we need to uh, encourage. I think so. Well, my theory about it is that it comes to being healed, which everybody or most people, probably everybody in some way, so broken in this world because the entire machine is so abusive, and it's abusive, you know, to the poor and to the rich and to the white and black and people of every gender and everything. So, I mean, like, it's, it's just abusive because it's rooted in, well, domination, trying to control. And, like, what I've observed that people who are less healed tend to be more attached to symbolic things in a more, like, addictive manner. And, like, you know, I, I've gone through that as well. So it's not, like, anybody's particularly smart. 
Like I've done a plenty of tremendously stupid things and especially out of fear or what, whatever, like dogma has never been my thing, but, you know, being afraid that, okay, I figured it out, but other people who haven't figured it out, they're going to screw it up for me, horror, horror. Like that sentiment, like you think that other people who are less advanced or haven't figured it out, they're totally going to screw it up. So you have to be afraid, you have to like control them by force so that they, they don't screw it up. Like that sentiment, mm. I think that sentiment drives a lot of people in today's world in all sorts of camps and ideologies and yeah. even in the freedom crowd. So now this, there's this vehement argument about like whether viruses are real. And to me personally, I could care less. Like I'm sure like it's, a, it's interesting to me to understand because it's just interesting to understand how things in the world are, but am I going to really argue with somebody given that I don't even have a fully formed and definite opinion because I think they both can be true at the same time. Am I really mm -hmm. going to uh, mess up the camaraderie and the things we have in common for the sake of like agreeing or disagreeing or half agreeing on that? Hell no. Yeah. So, yeah there's always a... Hmm. Go ahead. Oh. Go ahead. Go I was going to say that. Uh, wait, there's always a position. You, I think you can always transcend these these binary divisions and that's actually a that's people talk a lot about the Hegelian dialect without understanding it I, think. I mean I'm not saying I'm an expert on Hegel but but it's a metaphysical idea though that's been it's just been used as this sort of Machiavellian political technique by some people uh, but it, but but it, the idea is that the idea is basically that if you have two polar opposites the idea of a polar opposite is, is nevertheless that they're connected by a pole you know, they're polar opposites. So if you look at it that way around, you've got the two ends of the pole. But if you turn it around like that, oh, it's the same thing. In fact, it's the end of another pole. Uh -huh. And then you can turn that one around. And th there's always, there's always, a, there's always, you know, if you talked about um, two apparent opposites, like uh, light or dark, light and dark. Well, yeah, they're opposites in terms of whether there's a luminescence or not. But they're, but they're united in that they talk about you know, the visual, the visual element of the world. Okay. So you could, you could, could, you could contrast them in another polar opposite with light and dark versus the loud and the quiet. You know, there's always a, a way of, of transcending and finding another level. I think, I think that, that that goes up. You can carry on with that process right up until you, you're talking about the whole of everything that has ever been and ever will be. And you know, because there is that all-encompassing unity, which will always, if you're aware of it. We always allow you to rise above the apparent, the apparent uh, differences of, of the multiplication of, the, of, the, of physical reality and, and the mental reality and all the, the detail that surrounds us. Hmm. It's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting analogy that you made. I like it. And well, when it comes to communication, it seems like, well, I think that if you're not afraid, then you can very easily talk to somebody, not only if you just disagree on something, which I think it's perfectly healthy for, like people rarely agree with any other human being on 100% of things. It's just like, it's actually weird. Like most people disagree on something. Like they can agree on most things and disagree completely on something else or whatever combination. But also like I personally have no problem usually talking with people and talking like with curiosity, talking normally with people who even hold ideas that I find completely ridiculous. I mean, so what? I mean, they don't, they're not endangering me by holding ideas. And I mean, well, you can argue that people holding pro-COVID ideas, like mandate ideas are endangering those who don't want to get the product. And that's true, but there, there we find ourselves in an existential conundrum that is like eternal, meaning how do you deal with the situation when, you know, that is complex and difficult and challenging. So you deal with it as a challenge. You don't necessarily just smack them on the face and like make them march in line to your drum because then you're the transhumanist, even if you're like, if it's for the good reason and the, the same thing happens. So it's just existential humility, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, yes, the world is mysterious and no, I don't own it. I own my own opinions. I know I own my own choices, 
but I definitely don't own other people. So like deal with it. Complex. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we have to deal with it. Yeah. Does yeah. It make sense? Yes. I mean, they can't impose. Well. Yeah, it's having an opinion isn't imposing that opinion on someone else, is it? It's, it's uh, you know, if I say I'd like to see a world, my my vision of a world is this and that and the other. I mean, I'm not world dictator, so I'm not imposing that on someone else, <laughs> or you know, I, I couldn't even if I wanted to, which I don't want to. So there's no reason for people to be frightened by anything anybody else says if they don't agree with it. Yeah, I think so. But obviously, then, then there's that that real situation of being in a in the COVID moment and uh, wanting to uh, stop them from uh, enslaving us in with the experimental injections and uh, and uh, surveillance cameras inside our bodies and uh, you know, the rest of it. So I mean, that's a, but that's not really an opinion. That's a physical that's that's a physical form of domination that is happening. But yeah, I know I, I know what you're saying. That we people are far far too far too defensive, and I think it's because people aren't secure in what they think that they have to defend. They have to defend the lines so so sort of vehemently at times, you know, because they're not that sure, really. They've, 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 they've sort of uh, constructed a sort of flimsy house of ideas. And the moment you say something that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that blows a gust of wind in the direction of that flimsy house, they start panicking that it's all going to collapse, which is what we've been seeing, isn't it, with the uh, with the COVID thing, people who won't listen to uh, the, uh, the freedom side of the argument, the discipline side. But you're right, it could work in the other way as well, you know. Yeah, you're right. You, 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 you've got to you've got to keep in mind the fact that you're not. None of us are infallible, or we don't know it all. <laughs> we um, we should be humble. Yeah, we should be humble and listen, because that's how you can learn, isn't it? As well, to to to, to evolve and grow your own uh, your own understanding and personal philosophy. Yes. Yeah, I think I think so. But I mean, like for instance, I think well, both you and I agree on the freedom side of arguments as far as the COVID thing goes, and well, in the Great Reset and everything. And mm -hmm. like, say in my case, because it's just the easiest to speak about myself because I know how how it works from the inside. So I have very strong opinions, and I'm very confident about my opinions. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, and even realizing the dangers, like I am trying my absolute best and putting all of my soul into trying to bring people over to some clarity and understanding and compassion, how I see it and all those things. Like I'm putting a lot of soul into that, like really, really with passion. But I don't think that I'm existentially entitled to just like tie somebody's hand and like march them to my vision because that then I would be essentially a different version of transhumanist, right? I mean, the transhumanist, the, the dominator, the, the, the mm. transhumanist being a subspecies or subversion of a dominator, right? So, mm. like, it's just mm. not how it works. And then... But you can't do that. You can't do that anyway. Sorry. Right. No, but even if I could, even if I could, let's say whatever, like, for whatever, I mean, it's just, what is the value of forcing somebody to think something out of, say, fear? Say, I forbid people to talk about say they want the mandate and I forbid them to talk about it. What is yeah. the value? Is it, are they going to sincerely accept my view? Or are they going to just be afraid? And that what is, I mean, like, it's just like it becomes complete mess. And I think it is far, it's just like a technique that if you are on the good side, if you, you try to be on the good side, then it's just a technique you don't use. Because, yeah, because free yeah, will, like free will. Yeah, so, because that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about it's about opposing ultimately this whole because it's not just about isms of various types. It's all about opposing this flow of power, which is a dominant flow of power coming down from above and crushing people and life and uh, and free and freedom and um, to flour the flourishing of an organic society. I would say it's it's about reversing the flow of power to me. Um, Reversing the power, yeah, and opposing the power of destruction because the power is also destruction. If you look at the whole system that we live under, it's been uh, it's been destroying the world. It's been destroying cultures. It's been destroying people's freedom and for hundreds of years or thousands probably in its origins, but it's accelerated so much over the last few hundred years. But that's all going in the one sense. To me, the 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 the, the, the uh, resistance to that. The, the, the revolution against that is is is, is all about um, 
the life coming from below, the freedom coming from below, the power not coming um, is an empowerment rather than the rather than the domination. It's, it's just completely a different direction to me. The direction of the of the energy that we're not we're not submitting something coming from outside. We're we're radiating a positive energy from within that becomes when we when we, we associate with other people comes becomes a collective positive energy and then it you know that together grows in amplitude until it becomes a a completely the opposite kind of like yeah an opposite kind of power mm. something like that <laughs> well, i agree with you and then when it comes to solutions i'm curious what you think about this in my in my head i came to a realization pretty solid realization that there's no way for us to get out of it without bringing the help of the spirit. And I mean it in the most, not in a dogmatic sense, like this religion or that religion or this name or that name. But I think that, well, we come from that world, we go to that world. That world is the one that has solutions. And we are just playing here as like human beings. We are expressing our creativity and all those things and learning and playing. And I think that like the way out of it, the way I see it, is that when people finally stop being so arrogant as to thinking that we are not of spirit and or we know exactly what like God told us what we should tell other people to do. Like that all of it is different faces of essentially denying the mystery. And the way I see it is that massive, massive collective prayer meaning individually like but somehow just making this chemical reaction that once enough people have a strong enough longing for that mystery that we lost or was taken away from us and accept that other people also have a direct relationship with the mystery and there's no need to proselytize and allow that flow to happen i think that is when we're going to start coming back to a state of harmony relatively like not perfect there's always human beings never perfect but relatively so what do you what do you think about that yeah yeah i agree yeah <laughs> and um yes it's a spiritual energy it's a spiritual energy but, but because we're not we're a lot more than what uh, what our current society tells us we are we're just we're you know there's just this we're supposed to just be these um human you know individuals with brains and with uh, certain competences and uh, you know we're much more than that because we're all we're all extensions of the uh well of, of everything that is living for me we're extensions of the we're we're, we're um, provisional manifestations of the whole of humanity that has always that has ever existed and also of the whole of, of nature and the whole and the, and the whole of the universe the whole of everything we have so we've got that energy within us that is, is so much an energy and a belonging that is so much greater than just um, just what we appear to be on the surface that which is the side of which the side of, of us which is uh, which reads newspapers and what you know listens to opinions and is put in little boxes which we've got that we, we know we've got that as well we feel that energy but we we don't like to admit it it's, it's seen as something that you're a bit mad if you, if you feel that you have that intuition and yet we know it's there. We know it's um, like we, when you're in a big crowd with a united, some sort of united purpose. You feel you feel it in you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to go to um, sports football matches. I've stopped now because I've sort of, they all seem such a sort of hollow spectacle. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, at, at a time it was you know I just felt that belonging with other people. And that, that you realise that you're you're not you, know, you lose for a moment your own individuality in a greater mass. I mean, that's a, it's a rather pointless way of manifesting it just to support one football team against another. But at least it shows it's there and it can, it can <laughs> exist. You know? so, so if we can find that same sense of um, spiritual connection and belonging for, for, uh, for a more important cause, well, that's what, that's what, that's what I'd like to see. I, that sometimes you, I, think, I, think we, I think we can do it. We can, we can do it. And it's, it's the desperation that will release that. This, these last couple of years, it has been so many people have felt so totally uh, isolated and lost and on the point of 
collapse, I think. I mean, it's been very difficult, isn't it, that since the COVID thing began. That it's that which could spark, and it could spark the, this re-emergence of our collective human energy, positive energy against this dark, malignant energy that is coming down on us from above. Well, not really from above, from, from the outside anyway. I wouldn't say they were on a higher level. Anyway. I, I, I suspect that, that that great reset it show, it's here because people are not sufficiently well awake. I mean, like then it makes me sound arrogant. It's not how I mean it, but like I mean that under pressure, sometimes the beauty comes out, and I think the purpose is the beauty, and the purpose is the healing, and that wonderful uniting energy that you described. And I just want to hug you through the computer because it's so beautiful, and. Well, football I don't relate to, but <laughs> the rest of it. Uh, but then the predators, the only few really horrible predators. The rest of it is just like confusion and messes and like lots of trauma. And But the predators, the actual predators, I think exist for the social purpose of essentially awakening the beauty that we either became complacent about or forgot about or... So it's... And I am praying that we wake up to the beauty the soonest so that it doesn't have to be completely bad because people tend to wake up when it's completely bad it's just inevitably something like when it's completely horrible people wake up but i just hope that some something kicks in long before that yeah uh and now i want to be a good interviewer finally and uh, ask you about your work about the great reset and such because I had so many questions that I wanted to ask you humanly so I had to get them out okay. <laughs> so uh, the great reset you wrote mm. really brilliant uh, I mean I remember that was from two years ago the fascist great reset and you and I started writing about those topics around the same time so I feel great camaraderie and you probably mm -hmm. did it before before me and i didn't know but like oh, I was no. familiar so i think it was the same time yeah uh, and so i feel great camaraderie because of that i was like yes i mean like it's it's so and, and your articles are so in-depth they were so helpful and wonderful so what brought you specifically to that topic of the great reset uh well well i suppose it's uh well, apart from the obvious thing that I was living it like everybody else, but uh, well, well, I got there gradually. From um, we had the, were you, were you, um, did you write articles about the, uh, the the climate capitalism subject as well? Uh, Corey started doing that probably mm -hmm. the first one. I was thinking about it independently at probably mm -hmm. around the same time she was writing about it, but I didn't know about her. And then mm -hmm. when I found out about her work. I was like, holy fuck, I'm right. Like it totally, and I, I mean, I love her so much. Her work is so seminal. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, then I started writing about that too, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's sort of segued. It was, it's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, it oh, yeah. when, the, when the pandemic started, I didn't immediately say, oh, yes, that's the next phase of the same process. But it, but it so obviously was. And when, when you saw the, so we've been, um, I've been, yeah, I've been reading Corey Morningstar's stuff, obviously, and collaborating with her and, and others, and uh, and and uh, examining that whole world of these these uh, secret, well, yeah, secretive financial um, backers of the climate agenda, and looking at what was what they were really trying to push, and. Um, and then when the Great Reset, the COVID thing started and they announced the Great Reset, it was obviously part, it was obviously just the same thing on a different on a, on a different platform. They were using a new platform to to push the same thing. And it's the same when you start looking, it's all the same networks involved. It's all the same people. And it overlaps now. There's, you know, they they're not really hiding it. They're not really hiding it, but it's the same. It's the same agenda, and it's uh, you know, as obviously like you, the more I've gone into it, the more I've realized what all this structure, the structure is behind it, and other, the sustainable development goals being a, a key element. And um, well, you know, I don't need to tell you all. I don't need to tell you all this. So, how did I get into it? It was just a natural continuation of what what, what I and others were, were were investigating at the time. And also, of course, the whole 
Yeah, and, and also that was merging with this with this fascism thing. I, I was I was writing about fascism before the uh, before the COVID um, moment, and um, here in France it was um, I was writing about the Gilets Jaunes because I live in France, and then I started doing. I didn't know what they were to start with. Obviously, they were protesting about the rise the rise in the price of petrol, which I didn't think was a particularly worthy thing to be protesting about initially because I didn't understand that it was much broader than that. Yeah. And um, but the uh, the way that they were totally repressed by the uh, by the state here in France, both physically with um, the munitions of um, of repression, you know, all the grenades and tear gases tear gas and batons and the rest of it, but also through the media. It was the, it was the, same, it was the same methods that have been used under the Great, Great Reset. Macron was edging towards the sort of, the sort of levels of, uh, of, of uh, totalitarianism that we've seen since March 2020, before March 20, 2020. And I was wondering why. Why does he feel he can get away with this? How come suddenly he doesn't care if, if the public knows that they're, uh, that uh, you know, you're not haven't really got the right to demonstrate anymore. If they, you know, the, the public can see that all uh, people in the streets are being attacked, and those, and there were people, the, the dozens of people lost their eyes, and things like this, because of these police grenades going off. It, it was brutal. And what's going on there? And he was so smug about it. And I was starting to wonder, well, you know, what's happening here actually? Because this, this suggests that they've gone past the point of caring. I thought we were, it seemed to me, we we're already getting near to this point where they ditch the pretense of democracy. That's what I was writing in the, um, I think one of those essays just before great re before the, the Great Reset <laughs> was officially launched, was that now we were at that point from what I'd observed here. And uh, so, yeah, so that converged as well. With when, 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 with what happened with with, with Schwab's announcements and all the, you know, obviously all this build back better, the coordinated. Well, it was so obvious, wasn't it? All of that, but they're all saying the same thing, and, and all these, you know, there's that, that, that video people put together, all the TV <laughs> presenters saying exactly the same, reading off the same script. It's just oh, it's so so blatantly obvious. I think that was what was striking. <laughs> uh, and who are these people that are saying that it's not, they can't see it? What's wrong with them? What? <laughs> oh, just, just, it's been staggering. <laughs> Continues <laughs> to stagger me. The degrees of uh, gullibility, isn't it? I don't think it's stupidity. It's not a question of being educated or intelligent. It's a question of being in a state of, I don't know, hypnotized. Of, uh, being hypnotized. I, I, I think so. I think it's a fragmentation thing. Like, first of all, if say it is highly unpleasant to believe in this grand conspiracy by evil people in our times during our lifetime impacting actually us the very important western people with all our egos about democracy and liberal values and all that it is a highly humbling thought and i completely understand why one would want to avoid thinking in that direction if it is so possible so if one's life is not particularly like just you know destroyed to pieces then it's almost psychologically preferable to just like you know i'm not going mm -hmm. to think about it so yeah. i get it but i remember actually completely switching topics but that was my experience of kind of understanding psychological mechanism i was at a conference I was doing Tibetan studies in my you know, past life, well, metaphorically speaking, but you know that was originally what I was doing, Tibetan studies. And uh, I was at a conference in Beijing and I was probably, I don't know, like 20, whatever, like something like that. But I was, and I was presenting, I was doing linguistics. So I was presenting some linguistics paper, but I was very well aware of the fact that yes, there has been an invasion and yes, there has been, like murder and bloodshed and destruction of Buddhist culture in Tibet. I mean, it's 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 all factual, and people can argue what was before. But I mean, like it's 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 not it doesn't even matter. I mean, like the the horrible destruction and bloodshed and murder happened factually, and it's horrible. And Tibetan people in Tibet, who I talked to because I was there, they are heartbroken. Like many many people, like to this day, completely heartbroken. So that's factual. Now here I am at the conference in in Beijing. And obviously it's in Beijing, so they're talking 
like friendship of people. We brought civilization, the roads, we built roads, we progress. And it sounds so far more pleasant than the idea of destruction and bloodshed and war. Then that like in 10 minutes, I am like, oh, maybe things are not that bad. Maybe whatever, you know, and it's, and I had to like slap myself out of it because I knew that what they were saying was distortion of facts. And again, that's regardless of various, maybe not so seemly things that were happening before in Tibet, which is also true, but nonetheless, again, the violence is factual. So, and then, but they keep talking and they keep talking, you know, friendship of people, building roads, good education for children. And I know because, I mean, I spoke the language, I know that they changed the language like in many ways just so that it's different, so that it's new, like new normal, right? And so, but again, it was so like, oh, like, mess, like, they were tapping into the best parts of me because I really don't want to think like about violence and injustice and abuse because it's, it's unpleasant and taken back to COVID. It seems like it makes sense for somebody to want to avoid, especially if it's possible to avoid. And if I'm in my own world, not interacting with Klaus Schwab and the financial restructuring and the food, I mean, then I can kind of pretend in my own world that maybe it's just like conspiracy theory. But then again, if we are asleep and we need to waken up to reality, then the predator's role is to make things horrible as long as we allow them, like as much as we allow them. So I don't remember why I started this speech, but... <laughs> 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 but yeah, no, that's all good yeah so yeah, no, uh but uh well we should probably wrap it up but the conversation was wonderful and i want to thank you and you know if you want then we can have another interview at some other point so yeah we probably there's probably more to say isn't that actually yeah that'd be nice yeah <laughs> yeah that was great well thank, cool. you. thank you very much and well for the formal part so where can people find you? Where can people get your book? Uh, uh, well, the, um, there's a winter, uh, winter oak site, winteroak.org.uk is my main site. But the, book is, uh, the book is on there, but also it's been published, as I say, by Nevermore Media, mm -hmm. which is, I think it's nevermore.media, but you can, you know, if you search Nevermore Media, and they've been doing a lot of work in that. You know, packaging it up and spreading the word and telling people about it because they they think it's uh there's, there's there's some important stuff there that needs to be uh, circulated and seen. So you know, I'm very grateful to them for their help in doing that because yeah, one of the most important things we can do is get information out there, isn't it? Try and wake up those people who are, who are comfortably asleep and pretending there's nothing happening. Hmm. Well, thank you. Well, that was a wonderful conversation, and uh, we'll do it again. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks. Bye.